your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio on this Friday, can't think of a better way to close out another week of shows than hanging with my buddy Thomas Drans. Tom, what's going on, bud? Not much. Enjoyed. You the do? Florida Panthers pulling out another one. Last oh, I thought time. you were going to say, I'm, you, you, what you really are doing right now is currently simulating the draft order <laughs> and picks that will be available in our upcoming fantasy football draft, which was, happens two and a half months from now. I was but, just killing some time, yeah. Yes, as you as one is, uh, as, you, as you are one to do. Um, I'm no longer doing that, though. I would never do that. On no, the now we're focusing. Friend. I mean, we've got we've got Locked the in. French Open on one TV. We've got a replay of last night's game, which we'll be talking about here today on the show. Let's start with game three kind of observations, takes as Florida gets back and in, into the series and really makes a series of it, um, getting on the board. And then we'll talk, we'll close the show with some like fun current events stuff around the league for people who aren't necessarily as interested in the games because their favorite team isn't playing. We'll have a little taster for them at the end. So that was a smash and grab by the Florida Panthers. Yeah, well, I, th- I certainly think they should feel pretty fortunate oh. to have come away with that win. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to frame it as if they were demolished, but I no. thought Vegas's quality showed more in that game, certainly than it did in game one. And, and it felt like two things sort of were at play in, in my view. Anyway, one is I think we got the best Bobrovsky game mm-hmm. since, you know, early in the Toronto series, you know, for, for all of the overheated headlines that he was generating, in my opinion, anyway, during the conference final, that was a really good Bobrovsky game, and yet I can't get over the fact that, like, Vegas has converted on, what, 15% of their five-on-five shots all playoff long? Right. They were at 20% in this series, and it reminds me almost of the other South Florida Finals team in the NBA, where it's like the Miami Heater shooting an outrageous clip. They've got, like, three players who are 35% career guys shooting 46 48% yep. in the playoffs. And people are like, well, they're open shots. And it's like, yeah, but Caleb Martin's not going to make 48% of open threes going forward even. And and it just felt like at some point Vegas was going to have that game where they outplayed another team or outplayed the other team and still came out of it having been outscored 5-on-5. Five five. That's such a non-story for me, though, in the sense of like, can you believe that this team in the final of their sport has gotten some good luck along the way? No, it's of like, course. Well, what? Has the team ever made no. it to a Stanley Cup final with bad luck? Like Absolutely that's just, it's not. not a thing. Like of course you need to be good, put yourself in a position to benefit from that luck. But here's the thing: while you can cite Vegas's shooting percentage, which is certainly inflated, regardless of how much you value their improved shot quality. Yeah, when I do, they've been fortunate. Florida is now seven and zero in overtime games this postseason, they've which is fortunate. obviously just as fortunate, if no not question. more, right, to win that many coin flips. That's just the name of the game as well, when you get to this time of year. I right? mean, they were fortunate in in a lot of ways last night, I thought. They were. Um, okay, so they look like they were on the ropes, right? They they tie it up with 2.13 left in regulation. They win it four and a half minutes into overtime. Um, I'll give you the floor here. What do you want to do? you want to talk about Matthew Kachuk's impact? Do you want to talk about the officiating? Do you want to talk about what you sort of hinted at so far, which was how Vegas played in this game compared to Florida? Like well, I want to hit on all those, but it's your as a guest, you can pick which one we start with. Well, here's what I want to I want to start with. I, I want to give Paul Maurice a lot of credit for the following. I think it would have been easy, and I think a lot of coaches might have considered turning the dial a little toward Min in terms of the way that the Florida Panthers forechecked in Game Three, given how easily 
Vegas seemed to break their pressure in games one and two. And and I liked that Florida came out and just kept sending two forwards and kept playing their game. I thought that was important. I thought Vegas struggled to find that like pass down low to a centerman who's able to skate through the neutral zone. Yeah. I thought I thought they were had far less success breaking out of their end. Uh, at five on five, I think it did sort of they got stuck in the mud a little bit more. Early in the game. I thought as the game yeah, went as along, the game went they on, definitely they got their footing, yeah. But early in the game, it, it felt like they took them a while to get going, right? The Mark Stone goal was on the power play, yep. so it was the Marceau goal, right? Like yep. they, It just felt like it I, – I agree with you that they did sort of solve it as the game went along, but I liked that Maurice didn't alter his game plan, particularly because I think if you go passive against this Vegas forward group in, in particular with this Panthers defense, you're, you're going to get grinded up. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that one. On the one hand, I agree with you. I respect, like, we got to this point playing a certain way. We can't let two losses totally, like, we can't just concede and, and, and yeah. totally change our identity. At the same time, though, I wouldn't, despite the fact that they won this game and got a few more bounces and some better luck, I don't think the execution was necessarily to the point where I would say, wow, Florida really stumbled upon something that's totally changing the dynamic of the series, no. right? Like, I, I think Vegas should, while they should feel like they let one get away and they really could have taken a stranglehold on the series, ultimately, like, if you play that way again, you have to feel good about your chances. And particularly in the neutral zone, like, the breakout is one thing. But I thought that, you know, Florida or, or Vegas really seems to... um We worry sometimes about their team speed, right? You're, mm. you're talking about how, like, oh, can Florida's team speed overwhelm them a little bit? I've been noting how I feel like they absorb the opposition speed so well. I feel like they play better against these aggressive teams because they play that kind of passive forecheck in the neutral zone. They let you skate into it once you make a mistake eventually, which Florida has been doing in this series. They quickly counter and make you punish punish you for it, right? And I think that's what Paul Maurice was getting at in uh, in his media availability before the game, about where the he was talking about physicality. They're like, we're making this too physical. It doesn't need to be that way. We're kind of chasing hits and stuff like that. I think what he really meant by that was we're playing into Vegas's hands because they're just sitting back and they're basically laying this trap and then we're just skating into it and putting ourselves out of position. Right. And then Vegas's elite skaters like Stevenson and Eichel have so much more room all of a sudden to just skate up the ice with because Florida's like really tightly bunched and they're chasing all these hits and their spacing is all off, right? Yeah. And I thought we saw that kind of, again, for the most part. Now, the results didn't obviously indicate it. Vegas didn't even score a single 5-on-5 goal. Yeah. But I think it was kind of more of the same of that. And it's really interesting, that dynamic of how Vegas is almost benefiting from the opposition's speed. Yeah, it's an interesting It's an interesting point. I, you know, I, I like the stubbornness of sticking with what brought you there. And I, I did think they were more effective um, in that aspect of the game in particular last night. But... You know, I think it's like the way that Vegas is using their size to absorb contact as opposed to initiate contact. Yes. Right? It's like a it's a it's a skilled game married to the size of this Vegas team and, and I think that's allowed. I also do just think that the Panthers puck movers, especially on the back end, are like great at eluding pressure, but can sometimes skate themselves into it if you give them space. Like I do think it's a unique personality thing about this Panthers back end in particular that makes easing off them or playing them more passively advantageous. But here's the thing, like, and this Vegas team is different than the past incarnations that made long playoff runs. Sure. But I feel like when they've gone into trouble in the past, beyond just running into a hot goalie and not having the shot quality to get through it, I feel like they've struggled against these kind of like passive 
more defensive teams, right? That totally. just like almost almost do that to them, and then right. they they try to overcompensate to to speed the game up themselves, and they get into trouble. And so far this postseason, the Canucks you know, game plan in twenty twenty. The Winnipeg series is whatever in, in round one, yeah. But like then they play Edmonton, Dallas, and Florida, which are three of the more sort of aggressive teams in that regard. They haven't necessarily played, uh, you know, a Montreal team in that shortened season or the Canucks in the bubble or even that Dallas team that wound up beating them in the yep. bubble, right? Those are teams that kind of had success playing Vegas that way and they haven't really run into that type of opponent so far this postseason. Now, we're in game four of the Stanley Cup final. Like, I'm not expecting Florida to suddenly become that team even no. if I think they might benefit from it. Uh, um, I, th- I, th- I just don't think they have the defensive personnel to pull it off. I think they'd get ground up you know credit to a uh, friend of the podcast jack on who was on this talking about sort of adjustments after game two in this series one thing he was noting was because of vegas's passive neutral zone structure you can kind of beat them sometimes by doing exactly what florida did on the overtime winner which was in the neutral zone that regroup but then the like kind of delayed entry by sam bennett to stop up and then quickly hit carter verhage in the middle of the ice and then attack i i really like the execution on that and you know i was on your show um the other day and, and you were asking me kind of what can Florida do differently to get back in the series and I think we settled on getting a you know executing better clearly but also just getting some more balances and yeah. it feels like that's kind of what happened in this game three and sure enough they get the they get the win to show for it yeah they uh I I mean I I come out of that one sometimes you have these wins in, a, in the playoffs and you look at something a team did differently or a change, right? Like, oh, did they stumble on something? Right. Um, and well, sometimes you get wins that almost add to your confidence in the other team, like mm-hmm. in the losing team. And and this was one for me. I almost came out of this feeling like I felt I came out of game three feeling far better about Vegas's Stanley Cup chances than I did, for example, after game one, where I felt like the Panthers had gone toe to toe with them in a way that I hadn't expected. Well, on that note, I've been just beating the drum all postseason. I got to stay on brand and, and continue it. Natural Statric had high danger attempts in this game at 18 to 16 for Florida. Yeah. I mean, that certainly didn't pass the eye test, but no. also in my tracking. So when Florida pulled their goalie with like two minutes left in regulation to try to tie it up, scoring chances at that point in the game were 17 to six for Vegas. It wound up being 17 to nine. Florida got a few there and then tied it and won it in overtime. I thought Bobrovsky, as you mentioned, was terrific, particularly in keeping it two to one. Right, he got the benefit of that one post off of, I believe, Barbashev off the rush in the third period. But for the most part, he made a lot of the saves that people have been giving him credit for this postseason. But he actually did them in this game. Um, in particular, there was that that one. I think it was off like maybe Howden, where you could see Howden was trying to pick a corner and shoot high on him, and you could and the replay showed like you could visibly see Bobrovsky. He got low again, but then he almost remembered and he like he like he like jumped up and like physically fought it off with his shoulder, right? It wasn't a matter of like absorbing the puck. Like he had to get there and he yeah. realized that he was out of position. And it was cool because that was like it's very rare you see it play out in real time that way of like <laughs> that that chess match of shooter versus goalie and him sort of realizing and making the adjustment to his credit. So I thought he was really good in that game. It was probably the worst offensive effort I've seen from Florida this postseason maybe like there were a couple games against Carolina there where they went up and just didn't really try to score for large stretches of the game but I thought you know part of it is Vegas in the neutral zone was was, uh, so suffocating at times but I don't know I I didn't see anything very encouraging offensively from Florida now what I will say one adjustment they did make 
was coming home, having the benefit of last change. I thought what Paul Maurice did with his usage and deployment was an interesting wrinkle to this series. So the broadcast kept talking about this and in, 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 in crediting Vegas's fourth line for how well they've played in this series and being like, oh, Paul Maurice like, does not want to get his top two lines out there against these guys. And I don't think that's what was happening. I think Paul Maurice realized that he can only play his fourth line against Vegas's fourth line, right? Whereas Vegas is very comfortable sending those guys out against Kachuk's line and sort of absorbing some of those minutes to free up their top players. Paul Maurice does not have that luxury with the way his fourth line is structured, right? Right. So in this game, he was pretty much like exclusively trying to get that stall Colin White. Dalpy. Dalpy line out against Vegas's fourth line. What he also did was I think he realized that, and part of this was because so much of the game was spent on special teams, right? There wasn't as much five on five as you'd expect, but he really realized, I think that, okay, if I'm going to lose, I'm not going to lose rolling my lines. And if you look at the ice times that he divvied out for his players, like White, Dalpy, Lomberg, Cousins, Mahura, Stahl, everyone you would classify as sort of potential weak links on this team did not play. (laughs) And instead he played Sam Reinhardt for 26 minutes, Montour for 25 and a half, Forsling for 25 and a half, Barkov for 25, and Ekblad and Bennett. He really just rode his top guys as much as humanly possible. Yeah. And so that's tough because this late into the season, right? It's like, it is kind of a war of attrition and you don't just, they might not have as much left in the tank as they otherwise would. But with only a handful of games left in the season, if you are going to go down, at least go down swinging with your top guys. And so I speaking of that, like respecting them sticking to their brand, in this case, I do respect like Paul Maurice's acknowledgement of his weak links and then basically trying to eliminate their exposure as much as possible. Yeah. And one other thing that I found interesting was the way that Barkov was just sicked. Did you see his, on Jack did you see his head-to-head numbers against Eichel in this yeah, game? Yeah, ridiculous. Five and a half minutes. 10, 10 to, to 1, one shot attempt, zero shots on goal for Vegas. Well, I mean, I told you. <laughs> I told you Barkov gets up for those. But do, I, do, you want to, do you want to repeat it again for yeah. the people who somehow did not listen to our preview? No, just Barkov. Barkov, I, I remember when I worked with him and Eichel was on the Sabres, so there were four games a year. Like, mm-hmm. I know I, you can tell with a player, like, he, he got up to compete with Jack Eichel. I had someone message me and say, I love that story. I don't really understand why Bar like because they were in the same draft class right generally like that's like what we use as sort of like players viewing other players as a benchmark or like for some reason having commonalities I think in this case repetitiveness of playing against each other and I assume Barkov probably being like not only am I underrated but I feel like I'm better than this guy and no one really talks about it that way right I imagine there's an element of that well and I also think it's just you know number one centermen who are roughly your age you know, like I right. think, I think I don't know that he felt differently about like Matthews. Like it's just you could tell with with. Yeah, he's uh, not like Buffalo I'm going to go destroy Patrice Bergeron tonight. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like I'm sure he wants to beat him, but For there's sure. not like he's not, and, and he's measuring himself up against a gold standard at the position. But it's also not like not necessarily. Yeah. A, a, he's not a peer of his necessarily, no. right? And, and look, I think that makes all the sense in the world. They had to find a way to to contain Eichel and really going with a a far harder match in terms of Barkov. Uh, playing or or checking him almost straight up, I think made a fair bit of sense. You, they had to do it. They had to do it, even if the Bennett line. I mean, they they get the goal, but I I they didn't win that matchup. No, they didn't win that matchup against the uh, the Stevenson line. And then you know they really missed Lusterainen. Like I really think they missed Lusterainen a lot more than we're talking about on that third line. It just hasn't been 
quite the same without that third body, that third puck battle winner. Because when you put him and Reinhardt together on on Lundell's flanks, because Lundell, for me anyway, is just like smart at getting to open space and has a quick release, and that makes him really good. But he's a perfect fit with two guys that can really be sort of whirling dervishes in terms of driving play. Yeah, it was a bit of a symbiotic relationship. I think also like, you know, we were discussing this as well. You depending on your mileage on guys like Howden and Omadio, they're not necessarily like uh, needle movers, but in the in the context of playing with the players they play, you're not like pinching your nose every time they're on the ice, no, they worrying can, about what's going to happen. They can they're, they can they're fine. They can hang. They're fine, right? Yeah. Whereas, and and you feel that way about pretty much everyone on Vegas, right? Like even the fourth line. You're like, all right, if we get them out there against Kachuk's line or against Barkov's line, we're not necessarily frantically trying to get them off the ice. Whereas for Florida, they don't have that luxury. And so losing a guy you do trust has like an even further uh, effect. So I'm, I'm going to digress here a little bit. But right, analyzing hockey fundamentally, what we're always doing is trying to parcel out individual credit within you know, a, a team sport where it's actually very difficult to mm-hmm. do, right? And so when we talk about a line driver or a play driver. We're talking about trying to identify an individual player that we think gets more responsibility for team results than, or gets more credit or should get more credit for team results than guys who just share the ice with them. And I've always sort of had this formulation uh, when I think about hockey is like, there's guys who can set the table by which I mean, guys who can drive play, uh, you know, in, in my mind's eye, think about like Taves and Kane here. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, there's a guy who can set the table and then there's a guy who can eat. Right. right? And they, they may not be setting the table, but they have the talent to finish, to make it hold up, um, to really enjoy the meal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and yet, I feel like what we don't talk about enough is a level of player for whom Amadio and, and Howden, I think, are, are good examples, where it's like, often we'll say for a guy who doesn't, who in, in an anal- analysis or in an analyst's view doesn't get primary credit for a line's success or failure. Right. We'll call them like a passenger. Right. And that's actually a pretty negative connotation. Like, I, I feel like we need a term for a guy who is at the level of that line, is mm. like not a drawback. Who can, who, who can keep up. Yeah. Like, who can hang. Right. And so it's like, you know, for me, Howden and Amadio are perfect examples of, you know, I don't think they could drive a, a third or a second line right. on their own, but they're absolutely fine there. They're they're like completely useful and good and solid in that role and and I feel like that's um there's still real value there and I don't feel like we talk about it enough or or even have the language to do it within the context of you know uh, applying like an- analytics or or whatever to hockey. So let's stick with let's stick with this analogy. So William Carlson's in the kitchen. He cooks up a beautiful meal, right? Sure. You you trust Michael Amadio to transport that meal from the kitchen to the dinner table so that Riley Smith can eat. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or at least or at least like to keep Riley Smith company while he does some damage. <laughs> Just telling some jokes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yo, I'm noticing your cup's empty. Can I get you a refill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he can hang. Like yes. it's like it's like he'll he'll be invited back and he made sure to praise Carlson's Not, cooking well, at length. Yeah, but I guess what we're saying, like, that's, I wouldn't necessarily view him as additive. He's just not, he's really not taking stuff off the table necessarily, right? right? And so, and I think that is is valuable, especially when you find a guy off waivers or or like he's making the league minimum and you just bring him in and you're not paying for it. Or or if you build out your lineup the way Vegas has, right? Which is to try and have, you know, three really strong lines and then a fourth line that you're comfortable playing against just about anybody. I mean, one thing that'll be interesting is if Barkov eats 
and a lot of food analogies. I'm clearly hungry. If Barkov eats Eichel's lunch again in game four yeah. and the series converts back to Vegas 2-2, like at what point might Vegas have to consider loading up further? Because that's going to be sort of a, an interesting dynamic. I'm, I, look, I think Vegas has got enough here yeah. that they're well, going they have, to they have, win There's so many different ways they can beat you, right? It's not reliant and, on the one line. And you wouldn't look at this game despite the Eichel-Barkov head-to-heads and say that Vegas should change a single thing. No. Just do it again. Um, I honestly think that Game 4 is going to look a little bit like Game 6 against Dallas did. Like, Yeah, it could. I, I think we're going to see Vegas, um, you know, really unfurl a pretty significant uh, effort in Game well, 4. Well, a here. big part of Vegas – or a big part of Eichel's success this postseason has been because William Carlson has been absorbing so much of the defensive responsibility mm. as the best player, as we've been noting. Like, he's getting to feast on lesser and- competition. Barkov is about as challenging as it's going to get in that regard. And I do – like Eichel's still contributing, right? He's creating chances. Yep. Even at five on five, he set up a few last night. Obviously, the beautiful pass through like three different sticks Ludicrous. to get it to Marcheseau was just highest level of skill imaginable. And the and the fact that they have him to do that on the power play, whereas Florida hasn't really been able to execute in that way, has been a big difference in the series as well. For all the talk about how good they are at five on five, um, but they're going to need him to to break through and score a bit. But I, I love this. The strength on strength is what the playoffs are are kind of all sure. about. And like seeing Eichel try to break through against Barkov while Barkov's having a twenty five minute performance like he did in Game Three is just is absolutely phenomenal theater. Like that's what this is all about, right? Yep. And, and regardless of who wins it, I just want to see it as much as humanly possible. Well, and then and then you get the, you know, Kachuk clutch moment too, which is Well, let's talk a bit about Kachuk and his impact, right? Okay. Because he takes the hit from Kolasar. Yep. He stumbles after. Massive he gets hit. to still play on the power play. I, yeah, I, I what what's going on? Well, I, here's I didn't the thing. love that. After the game, both him and Paul Maurice, I believe, said that the reason he was pulled was because of the concussion spotter, right? Okay. Now, his reaction to that hit would certainly, even though he didn't get hit in the head, would lead you to believe that he was dazed, right? Like, it's a very classic, like, you get hit, there's impact, and then the reaction after, like, he's stumbling trying to get up. Here's the thing, though. Dazed or winded, but I think when a guy falls down... He pretty clearly had a shoulder injury, though. Right. Not not that's necessarily, oh, you can only, it can only be one or the other, right? Like, yeah. you, can, you, can, you can have the head trauma while also having hurt your shoulder along the totally. way, especially, like, during a fall, but... On the sports broadcast, they showed on that power play shift before he got pulled from the game, like he literally couldn't lift his arm. And then there was a battle along the boards and he like meekly skated into it with one arm and then tried right. to poke at the puck and then quickly got out of there. Like he clearly was physically unable to compete mm-hmm. in that way, which is very uncharacteristic for a guy very. who just sticks his nose in those types of uh, like traffic areas as much as possible. Now he came back and he obviously delivered the heroics as uh, late in the game, but that was a very bizarre sort of like handling of it and lack of clarity. And then after the game made me feel even more confused about it. Hopefully both him and Brandon Montour, who also got hurt at the end of the game, are going to be okay, right? Because while we feel like Vegas is the better team here, Florida is certainly capable of oh, yeah. sticking around and competing in these games and giving them difficulty. And you want to see them have all of their guys available as as close to maximum capacity as they can be. Yeah. Well, and as you know, and as the odds stack up right like as it's like kachuk is hobbled gudis is playing through something right can't can't even practice um montour we'll see what his status is when the club uh, i guess probably does morning skate tomorrow um as those odds stack up the panther's story in some ways becomes more irresistible mm-hmm. right yeah um so it's gonna be a 
yeah, look, game four, I'm I'm excited because I think we're going to see Vegas's best game of the series. Like, I really think we're going to see Vegas's best effort, and it's just a question of whether or not Florida can find a way to to you know hang on with their fingernails here because you know when Vegas when Vegas has gotten up, we've seen it game two against Winnipeg. Um, we saw it occasionally against the Oilers. We certainly saw it in that sixth game against Dallas. Yep. I just think that this team's gear, their top gear, is as close to unhittable. They're, they're as close to like skating an opponent off the ice as, as anything I've seen. And I, I just think we're going to see it game four. I'm stoked. Man, Kachuk is so good, though. He is so good. Like his impact in this game, which I just wanted to like give love to, factor in on all three Florida goals, right? Pass off the wall to Mondrew for the yep. first one. Second one, he first tips for Higgy's shot, which is a scoring chance. Then it goes back around. He gets the rebound. He taps in. And then the third one doesn't even get a point. But that goal does not really happen without him doing the net drive and kind of yep. at least giving Aiden Hill and the defenders something to think about, right? And so phenomenal player. I really hope he's like able to use both of his arms functionally in oh. game four. And uh, and it should be a heck of a game. He'll, you know he'll play. He'll play in a sling if he has to. <laughs> okay, Tom, let's uh, take a break here and we come back. We'll close up our conversation on this series. We'll pivot to a few other topics. You're listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast with Thomas Drans. Tom, before we move on to other topics, let's close. Let's let's put a bow on on our conversation of this game because, you know, we're rewatching it now as we're recording. Um, it was an it was a close game, obviously, right? The overtime mm-hmm. finish. I don't. It was like actually the the least enjoyable game from like an aesthetic perspective of for this me so far. Final? Yeah, no and, question. And it's a frustrating part because I think we both agree that it, it's it's very. Um, annoying when officials get in the way of games by quote-unquote putting the the whistles away and letting the guys play and all that and then and then you have less skilled slower teams sort of leaning on more talented opponents and and evening the playing field by taking advantage of that but then you get games like this where what there was 11 combined power plays and I don't know I could have done without a handful of them I think like it was a lot of stuff where I guess by the letter of the law, it might be a penalty, but it didn't really impact the play, and so we don't need to we don't need to stop the game to do this because it's so beautiful when the game is free flowing. And in this game, we had forty one of the sixty five minutes were played at five on five, and that's just yeah, not enough. That's not what what that's not when playoff hockey is at its best. No, although it was kind of the last gasp. Like one thing to track here is the Vegas power play has been so potent, and we know because of our buddy Cam Sharon's tracking and and work over at the Athletic and at his own. Uh, website we know that the whistles go the whistles go away more as the series gets deeper yeah and so it's going to be fascinating to watch that dynamic because i do think we're in for an abrupt shift whether it's in game four or game five where we're going to see 58 56 minutes played at five on five which it's it's strange to say because i think we both agree that that vegas is the superior five on five team yet they've had such a special team's advantage in this series that it feels like if they do put the whistles away, it would theoretically benefit Florida more, even though it would lead to more five on five play. Yeah, I, I mean, I look Vegas is going to get theirs. Like that's the thing here, right? I mean, how many five on five goals did they go into this game with? In in like, their I think fifty six and nineteen games or something. <laughs> yeah, but here's press. the thing: in this series, so this postseason, Vegas had ten power play goals in ninety minutes in the first three rounds. Yeah. In this series so far, they have six 
in 26 minutes through well, these three games. One of them was an empty netter, but still. But it's because Bobrovsky's having way more trouble seeing around Mark Stone than I think anybody could have guessed. Yep. I mean, Mark's, like, uh, the the way that Bobrovsky's eyes have been taken from him on the power play, I think, is extraordinarily good work by Vegas. But also, you know, Ottinger, Stuart Skinner even. <laughs> like Other guys have been able to see around that in a different sort of way over the course of this playoffs. Yeah, well, Florida does, as um, as Jack Hahn has noted on the show, Florida runs that 1-2-1 one, one diamond, which mm-hmm. leads you exposed down low and gives you the numbers advantage if you get that pass through. Yeah. And that's what we've seen, right, on, on, on the Eichel pass, various others, like high-level plays, obviously, but it leads to a lot of Jonathan Marcheseau just hanging out of the circle and just teeing off. And with Mark Stone's butt in Brodsky's face, it's also yeah. like, good luck, right? So yeah, that's tough. kind of been, I mean, that, that has... For as much as Vegas is a superior 5-on-5 team and has been this postseason, the difference so far in these three games has kind of been execution on the power play, which is something I thought we might see heading into the series, but just for opposite reasons. Like, I thought that Florida might be able to get the better of Vegas there, and it's been the complete opposite. So, once again, I mean, this is the beauty, the unpredictability of the playoffs, but also from an analyst perspective, it can be pretty frustrating. Yeah, I mean, the, the Vegas power play looked kind of dead in the water. Um, I also find it amusing that both of these teams' penalty killing rates are atrocious over the course of the playoffs. Right. Like it's been, it's I I, I just think that's fun. <laughs> right. I get. Yeah. It, it goes Goals against what we generally great. believe. Right. Goals yeah. are great. Um. Okay. So let's talk about two guys on Vegas here: Nick Haig and Nick Wah. And everyone named Nick. Um. Are are we, are we having the offer sheet? Because it's going to segue us into. Super duper early uh, off season player movement kind of concepts in terms of what's happening of the NA of concepts from other leagues like the NBA trickling yeah. into the NHL. So we can kind of talk about that. I think it's a good segue rather than just jumping from this series purely into random yeah. stuff that has nothing so, to do with it. But but so I know where you're going with this, right? Well, which is that, which is that, the offer sheet device, right? Like that's what you're talking about. Well, the opportunity here, well, here's cost. What, here's what I want to say. Everyone that is cheering against Vegas is doing so under this misguided notion that the league gave them this team and they're like, they're cheating somehow by manipulating the cap. And they've certainly leveraged it to their advantage over the years. But the only people you should be mad at are your, your own team's GM because guys like Nick Waugh and Nick Haig were just sitting there all of last summer waiting to be offer sheeted because they're good players, they'd put enough on tape for me to feel like they could do better in a bigger role, both in that sort of 24 to 26-year-old range. And an offer sheet of up to $4.29 million last summer would have cost you a second-round pick comp to get them. And there was and no Vegas had zero like, plausible way of matching <laughs> that. Like They just could not have happened. No. And so well, and, and teams just allow... Now, obviously, the player has to sign. Players like to play in Vegas. There's all of that, I'm sure. I'm, sure. I'm sure. But you can't tell me that if if a team loved Nick Waugh as like a six foot four two-way center who has even more untapped playmaking ability that they couldn't have... If they had offered him $4.3 million for five years, that he would have said no because he liked Vegas's $3 million offer instead. Like, I just, I just don't buy that as an argument. Oh, I, people make that argument in bad faith because... I don't know. They want to believe that teams aren't just not making offer sheets for for like, you know, reasons of of relationship management or or I guess that's the polite way of saying collusion. Hmm. But let's be real. If if that was the reason, like if every player in the NHL 
hated money that much, it would be a pretty interesting departure from how every other human being on the planet conducts their own business. And I, I, maybe. Well, also Vegas is like. The player what? would have had to sign it. I like, why do we always hear that as the reason that, a, that an, it's, it's wild stuff. Man. Well, also that, that, that collusion idea of like, well, you know, you don't want to upset the other team. Meanwhile, like, what do we talk about Vegas all the time? They're just ruthlessly at any cost trying to improve their team every single off season. Yep. And meanwhile, you're just letting them keep good players for less than they're worth. Well, look, we had this discussion around the Tampa Bay Lightning where everyone was upset about the Nikita Kucherov LTI thing, yes. right? And the Mark Stone LTI thing is the same thing. And, you know, that was after a summer in which uh, Ross Colton, Sergeyev, Sorelli, and Cernak all similarly sat around waiting. Yeah. And ended up signing, you know, 4.25 for Cernak. Like, come on. That's a steal. Right. But at least in that case, like, Tampa Bay was coming off of a Stanley Cup. Right? That was that summer. So you could at least be like, all right, well, listen, like, you want to, like, win a Stanley Cup, like... Well, and and it was and it was Vegas fall. is coming off a year where they missed the playoffs. Obviously, sure. intent like extreme number of injuries and all that. They were unlucky, but still, like it's, I think it's a different context even in that regard. I just think at the end of the day, efficiently used offer sheets should be used to mess with your opponents as much as to actually land. Well, the especially players. like that, that kind of like uh, cascading poison pill one, right? Whereas totally. if the two guys are available, you give a big one on one and it's like, all right, if you want to tie it up here, all right, oh, now we're just going to get the other guy. For sure. And I'd add this, like the, you know, Michael McLeod, right? New Jersey Devils played fourth line minutes, right-handed centerman, way more skill to the eye. Like the skill that he shows on tape pops in a way his mm-hmm. counting stats do not. Yep. Um, I already mentioned he's a 60% faceoff guy. This is like, this is the bet you want to place in my view. If you want to try and find the next Nick Wah or maybe even wild bill, Hmm. right? Like you want the fourth line guy who you think can be an awful lot more than that for your team. Like that's, that's the concept of the expansion process. Like, right. Guys benefiting from being in a new environment with added opportunity. Right. Yeah. The, the best way to land that guy is the offer sheet bet where you value him at a level that his current team isn't ready to yet or can't afford to yet. Now, do you, th- okay, do you think that it is actually because teams are scared of stepping on one of their 31 competitors' toes? Or do you think it's a fact that pro scouting in the NHL probably isn't where it needs to be? I, I think it's like, do you think like Michael McLeod is actually being valued enough? Because if a team felt as highly about him as you or I do, and, and we're just using him as a kind of epoxy post conversation, like Nick Wall last summer as well. Like if you fall in love with that player, it just seems absolutely preposterous to me that you wouldn't go above and beyond to get him for a second round pick. If you felt like he could be your second line center of the future. Yeah. Right? Or so even, that, so even your high end third line center of the future, like where else are you getting that player for $3 million? Come on. Like yeah. Pius Suter's what going to be a four million dollar player? Like, I yeah. mean, I mean the the value of landing a guy with that profile uh, at the age of twenty five to me that's a no brainer. I mean, in this series, Vegas uh, Nick Hague leads Vegas in five on five ice time, and and I think Nick was on the fourth line, like wildly overqualified. We've seen him play on the second line. Yeah, he's great this postseason. His versatility and playmaking at six four is just. Like, ludicrous it's the type of thing where you would think an nhl gm would be just drooling over it and and so i don't yeah i don't 
it's it's tough to reconcile all of these things at once. I think there's a lot of things going on, but I, I do think it's fundamentally like ingrained conservatism and the fact that, you know, I, I do think teams within the NHL environment like struggle sometimes. And this is I, I think Vegas's edge and, and I'd add Bill Zito's I think edge I think both of these GMs who are playing in the final are good at this. Like I do think GMs struggle sometimes to act in their own self interest. I, I really do think there's a collectivist well, you don't want to you, you don't want to get a nasty text message from one of your one of your buddies running another team, right? No, I know it's ludicrous. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's let's segue into this. Then, do you want to talk a little bit? We can do Pierre Luc Dubois. We can do Alex DeBrincat. We can do any number of sort of guys well, who are theoretically. Why don't we available. do the news of the day? Why don't we do Damon Severson and then and then circle back to Dubois and DeBrincat because I do think there's a pretty classic link between the two, which is you know. When you think of the Tanner Janot trade, and this was the first time it really occurred to me, like the NHL trade deadline transpires, um, you know, as NBA trade season was up. And, you know, I kept looking at these NBA trades and seeing like five second round picks. And I'm like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that has no basis right. in, in hockey. And then the, the Tampa Bay Lightning do the Tanner Janot trade. And it's like, that's an NBA deal. Yeah, well, they were like, "Here's an entire draft year's class. worth of draft." Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe it was more like the Ricky Williams <laughs> trade, right, right, but right. but it was, you know, it felt like an NBA deal in terms of the scale of it, in terms of the way that those draft picks were valued by a by a contender. And then we get to, you know, today, and like we got a sign and trade, mm. we got a real sign and trade where a team effectively loaned. An extra year. Uh, an extra to year. To keep the AAV down, right? Right. And and returned, you know, usually these the rights for these players trade for a fifth or a third or a fourth. And it feels like they upgraded the the value of the pick they got back right. for a guy they weren't going to sign anyway to a third for their trouble, which was no trouble at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look, I, I good business for New Jersey. It'll be extra good business for New Jersey if they repeat the process with Ryan Graves. Yes. Like, if they, if they, if they come out of this... Having walked on from both of those guys and re- and returned multiple mid rounders, it's just going to be like that's brilliant. But um, but that's an NBA deal. It is. That's an NBA deal. Now the NBA has really creative predatory offer sheets, so that's the next step here. But we've also got Pierre Luc Dubois and Alex DeBrinket bringing that like player power dynamic to their last year of restricted free agency is effectively exercising what uh, NBA analyst Jalen Rose once dubbed pre-agency. So we've got the pre-agent trend now coming to the league. And and I think that one's fascinating, especially to have Matthew Kachuk do it last summer and now Dabrinkit and um, Pierre-Luc Dubois. I think it poses some really difficult questions about um, maintaining your team, maintaining star players if you're in a... Canadian market like Ottawa, Calgary, or Winnipeg. Mm. I think that's one part of the discussion. I also think it poses some really difficult questions for teams in terms of like if there's going to be a conveyor belt now where prior to hitting unrestricted free agency, players regularly shake loose in this manner. Does that change the sorts of assets and flexibility that you should maintain so as to be the team that's capable of getting Jack Eichel, that's uh, capable yes. of getting Matthew Kachuk, yeah. that's Essentially capable keeping, of keeping getting your powder dry, right? To break like, it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're in a desirable market, right? Like a bigger yep. market where you would think a young, young star would like to play uh, their mid 20s, right? Um, yeah. I think of a team like LA 
is really interesting. We already saw this a little bit and then benefit from it last summer with Kevin Fiala, right? Where um, right. at the time, it was clear that Minnesota wasn't going to be able to retain him mostly as well because of their own cap complications. But then there was this idea floated out where it's like, well, Kevin Fiala is a really good player. So all of these other teams are are interested. Look at this market, right? And it was like, I remember Ottawa was linked to him, even New Jersey, all these other teams. And in reality, he was like, he told his agent, I'm only going to LA, right? Right. And so being that type of, and then LA is of course then able to be like, all right, well, we have the cap space. We have the draft, uh, the draft capital and a prospect. We'll give you favor in a first. And we and, can absorb him well, and pay him what he wants. And it's a win-win. And a prospect who feels similarly. Right. About, <laughs> about wanting to go somewhere. In Minnesota, right? right. So it's, it, it, that was, um that was a uniquely uh, well-suited deal between those two teams. But yeah, I mean, that's interesting because Fiala effectively already called his shot too, and we don't even lump him in because it happened under the radar. It did, but it's also, I mean, like these reports are, are kind of amusing to me because, I mean, a similar thing happened with Kachuk, I think, where I think he probably would have been open to maybe the Blues, but a lot of the other teams that were like technically on his short list, I have a hard time believing they. it was more of a let's kind of save face by making it seem like he's not really backing his existing sure. team into a corner, right? So it's kind of like a PR move. I think that happens much more as well because you see the Debrinkat one, right? And Pierre Lebrun was like, oh, well, you know, Dallas, I assume, would be on his list. And so it's like, okay, even I, he might want to go to Dallas. It's, there's just no possible roadmap for that actually happening. So playing that out as a potential scenario just seems like it's purely PR because it's not actually based in reality. Right. That's not a realistic suitor for uh-huh. it. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> all right let's keep moving <laughs> um so yeah no it's uh well i think what's been funny about this too is the way that it's trickling out right so these are canadian markets right we've got jeff jackson and we've got um caa so so um pat Brisson and jp barry and you know in both cases Right. There's a list. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a list. It's not long. Um, players not going to sign there released in a, in a certain way. Um, you know, it, it's a fascinating thing to watch because it, it, these situations really do now feel like they're unfolding um, with a playbook. And and I do think that's the Kachuk legacy. Does Kachuk's here's a question for you. Does Kachuk's success right out of the gate for mm-hmm. Florida? change whether or not a team not on the signing list should do it as a rental Mm -hmm. would it would it like in retrospect would it have been worth it for let's pick i don't know who fell short in the playoffs toronto Mm -hmm. would it have been worth it in retrospect for toronto to come to the table in that kachuk situation and offer nylander sandine to try and rent Kachuk, right? In re- like, like um, this is obviously pure hindsight. But right. With with the benefit of pure hindsight, would that have made sense for them? It's tricky because the unpredictability or volatility of the playoffs as well. Totally. Like it makes no one player really. Kachuk certainly moved the needle significantly for Florida. Right? We're seeing like literally all the overtime goals and clutch yeah, yeah. heroics he's had this postseason and how good he was this regular season for them and just changing the culture and all that. But 
it's really tough no matter if you're already a contender and let's say you finished first in your conference the previous year and you're mm. like, all right, we're going to try to win a Stanley Cup this year. No one addition is going to make you feel actually confident that you will win a Stanley no. Cup. And then if you run into a goalie or something and lose in, <laughs> lose in round two again and then you have then nothing to show for it, that's a really difficult pill to swallow. Now, I'm always well, all I'm, for trying to win a Stanley Cup if it's within your window. but And what's the story of the Kachuk trade if Chicago simply loses to Pittsburgh in the last week of the season? Right, I mean, yes. the, the, we'd be talking. But so it, but but no, but I'm, st- I'm still. Fine. But but in this case, right, it's like this was a long term play as totally. well. Right? It's a 24 year old. We're gonna have him at a good price. Well, but for I'm talking about the short. I'm talking about is it worth right for a one year try to win a cup? Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the acquisition cost, and you have to kind of factor that in. But I don't know. So I think the the list component of this is very interesting to me because I do believe that while like I don't think Dallas is a realistic landing spot for for Debrinkat, I do believe that like he would be open to many more teams than a pure Luke Dubois who really has seen these have been like telegraphing Montreal, Montreal and then yeah. it's an interesting thing where it's kind of it's like if you're Montreal do you just not risk it and then pay a bit extra just to make sure you secure the asset yeah, you do. or do you wait till free agency and then bring them on you you when you're this far out when you're like 12 months out just pay to get it done don't risk it obviously it's different at like the deadline or, or acquiring a guy's rights but no, I think I think if you're I think secure secure the good player. I I would say I would say fundamentally I think the rental model for Matthew Kachuk is fu- a fun thought exercise. Mm-hmm. But it but it I just th- runs also so counter like how NHL teams operate though. P- push your assets into extending your window. Like this is why like from the perspective of the Severson deal, I liked the Provorov deal for Columbus. I was one of the few mm. that did. But the Severson deal far exceeds my risk tolerance because of the term involved. You know. When well, you get also, what are you trying to accomplish? Like totally. Well, but no, but, but for me, for me, I don't have a problem with bringing in like a getting player. good players. I don't have a problem with getting good players if, when you're in a rebuilding situation like the Columbus Blue Jackets are, you've set yourself up to do it without limiting the ceiling of your core. Like because Provorov is affordable and the deal is short, mm-hmm. and they had surplus draft capital. Right. I don't. I don't have a problem with getting a player you think will retain value or or bring real value to you uh, at the cost that they did it. But once you commit to Severson through his age 36 season, right? And now we're looking at 15 million committed for the next four years to like Merzlikens, Goodbranson, and Severson. Yeah. That begins to be like, that's going to limit your ability to shoot yourself out of the muck. You know, sh- once, once your Kent Johnson's and your Sillinger's and your, you know, Leo Carlson's start to hit. But the thing that I, I just don't like is, like, I just think there's this fundamental misconception where a lot of these teams operate under this guise of, well, we bring we make splashes in the offseason. We're, like, not terrible next season. That's going to – we're throwing our fans a yeah, bone. There, there's no and one... then I'm sure Columbus fans are excited now. The games are going to start. Reality is going to sink in where they're, at best, going to be, like, the 10th best team in the Eastern Conference or something. Yeah. And then it's going to be like, all right, well, what do we ultimately accomplish here? Whereas I'm much more in favor of like losing, but doing so in a in a plucky, fun way where you're like establishing the vibes, kind of like what Buffalo did this year, what yep. New Jersey did previously, and then trying to time your window accordingly to actually be good, as opposed to aiming to be the tenth best team in your conference. I, I when like I liked the Provorov trade. Yeah, we get it, Tommy. But but. I didn't realize until the Severson deal yeah. that the Philadelphia Flyers had sent their vibes to Columbus in the package. It's like the it's like 
Daniel Breer bundled the the short term thinking desperation and sent it to Yarmo. Well, that's the thing. I think what I don't Provorov I don't mind any of these moves in isolation. I was like, and I was so like, I'm all for getting better players, but just at what cost in terms of what it signals for your actual objectives. Mm. And it's like hiring Mike Babcock, doing all these moves. Yeah, it's a fun. It's it just reeks of desperation or an organization that is not limiting its ceiling, but also like not actually trying to win a Stanley Cup in 2028 or something, right? right? It's like just trying to be relevant or whatever the definition of that is in the next yeah. couple of years. Well, the the teams that everyone knows aren't close trying to be relevant is always fun. We're, we're wrapping, right? Yep. I just wanted to say thanks for having me. And in case you didn't know, I'm a big fan of the Provorov trade. <laughs> Tom, I will let you plug some stuff. Let the listeners know what you've been working on yep. because you've been doing more national stuff, which I love to see. I think I don't want to see you wasting all of your talents on covering the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> so uh, give me a, give me a little spiel here on what you've been working on. Yeah. I can check you out. Come, come check out my work at the athletic.com. Obviously Canucks talk coming up next with Jamie Dodd. My co-host wrote a big Connor Bedard feature over at the athletic really this week stuff, that, yeah. uh, that I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, and I've got some stuff about how much I like the Provorov trade. So you can enjoy that as well. All right, buddy. We'll keep up the <laughs> keep up the great work. Uh, we're gonna have you back on again soon. Uh, that's it for another week of the PDO Cast. Everyone enjoy Saturday's Game Four. We'll be back on Monday to talk about it and the rest of that series. So looking forward to that. In the meantime, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO Cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.